Well, thanks for that worship today. Really, uh, that song, Kadosh, I used to sing all the time when I was back in Chicago in a Messianic Jewish congregation. So it really brought back memories. I love that piece. Cool. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about uh, us as beings this morning uh, as we get started in our new series, which we're calling Yearning for yearning with, I should say, affection. And I'll explain to you what that phrase even means and and where it comes from. Um, But just kind of go with me on this a little bit. I I want you to think about yourself. We all know that we're we're a thing, right? We have this incredible uh, ability to be aware of ourselves. We have self-awareness. We're a unique thing. And we spend a lot of our lives trying to process what we are. What does it mean? that we are a thing, what, what value or significance or worth should we attach to this thing that we are? And we ask that question over and over again, and we find that it, it penetrates to some of the deepest longings that we have as human beings. When we're getting into the realm of value and significance and worth, we're touching on some of the the really deep things and the deep questions and the deep longings associated with what it means to be a human being. And we we try to answer that question in all kinds of of different ways. Um, Maybe when we find ourselves in a new context, we feel like we have to answer that question again. Uh, and, and so we kind of are, are chasing ourselves around oftentimes trying to figure out how do, I, how do I find meaning and significance and worth now? How do I find it in this place and in this world at this time given, given who I am and what I've done and, and all of that? Um, and we look to different sources for that sense of significance and, and worth and, and meaning. We might look um, to our own competencies, for example. Um, I'm good at X or Y or Z. I was, I was taking one of those personality inventory things recently, uh, and I hadn't taken uh, any for a long time, um, but I had taken this one before. And as I was coming up to take it, I started to feel all this sort of anxiety and, and stress about it. And I, I couldn't figure out what was going on. Why was I so anxious about just taking this dumb little personality kind of inventory. What I realized is that between the time when I first took it and now, I had come to have a certain conception of who I am. And I was becoming attached to that. My sense of value and worth was attached to how I perceived myself. And I was fearful that when I retook this, I might find out that I'm somebody different than I, than I thought I was. And that was a threat to my sense of self and value and worth. See, this is how this this kind of stuff works. Um, We sometimes attach our value and our worth to our accomplishments. And we fight, maybe we even understand that dynamic is at play, and so we try to fight it. We say, oh, that doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. Or our lack of accomplishment, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, those of you who are graduating right now, um, this is probably a, a good thing for you to be thinking about, right? Uh, it's wonderful that you've, you've achieved what you've achieved. You've arrived at this place, and you have this diploma Wow, that's awesome, and we celebrate, and we, and we pray for you. But we also want to encourage you, don't wrap your identity around that diploma or any other 
achievement that you might accomplish in the course of your life because it will never be enough to ultimately satisfy, right? This is the dance we do with, with what it means to be a person and, and how we kind of process these things. We could, we could attach our sense of self and value and worth to our physical attributes, right? I always wonder if somebody's really tall or you know, really muscular, how does that shape the way, I mean, I haven't ever experienced either of those, um, but how does that shape, you know, the way that you think about yourself um, or, you know, um, you know, people told me that, you know, when you start to lose your hair, um, I may never experienced it myself, but you know, that, that shapes kind of how you think about yourself. So I'm told, um, but then we can get into some of the deeper things, right? Our society is grappling with some, some really powerful and, and I think some important questions right now about your, your, your physical makeup and how that does and doesn't shape your identity. And so, you know, um, we're having the societal wide conversation. If I'm a, if I'm a woman, right? There are certain places where I may feel less than, or if I'm a minority, there are contexts or messages that I might take and receive and, and end up feeling less than. Um, and so there, there's this value and this, this worth and this significance kind of stuff attached to our, who we are physically uh, as well. And, and what a great thing that we're, we're, you know, right now there are efforts afoot to try to undermine that tendency and, and, and make it different, make it better. Uh, and that's a, that's a good thing that we celebrate and that we want to be a part of. Um, there are many other ways that we can, we can answer this question about value and significance. Um, let me just call it a few. Our affiliations, sometimes, you know, maybe they could be political or otherwise. Um, you know, you're always, if you graduate from Cal, you'll always wear that Cal sweatshirt. That will be your affiliation, right? You know, and you'll walk around and you feel a sense of, of confidence in that. And that's good. And that's wonderful. But, but right, we don't want to uh, wrap our identity around that, our affiliations, um, our, our material acquisitions. And, and many of us say, oh, I would never do that. But we know that there are temptations there and people all over the world attach identity to mere material acquisitions. And uh, I'm putting my glasses on because I'm not ashamed of wearing my reading glasses and what it says about me and my identity getting older. Um, good with that. Okay. Reputations and responsibilities. You know, I'm responsible for X or Y or Z and that, that, that feels good to me and it, it makes me feel a sense of value and worth. And so, so we could go on that line for quite a bit longer, but the question I want to ask us today is this, here's where we're getting to the point here. What is the church's role in the formation of our identity? What is the role of the church in the formation of our identity? And eventually, this is going to lead us to this concept of yearning with affection. Because we see something in the, in the Apostle Paul that's really powerful in the way that he treats the people around them, him. The way that he loves the people around him. What that does for them and, and to them. Um, as we come back together physically, you know, this is wonderful to see so many of you here in the parking lot today. Um, and I know there's some inside and some of you are at home. And it's so exciting to be coming back together, to be able to see each other's faces, to have interaction and, and talk with one another. Um, this is a great opportunity for us, is it not? This is a kind of a reset for us relationally. 
How are we going to come back together? And how will we step into the call that God has on us as the church to be part of the identity formation process for each and every image bearer that we encounter? And so to get started along this path, I want to ask two questions today. What are we saying to each other? What are we saying to each other? Like, in a, I'm, I'm talking specifically within the community of the church. What are, we, what are we saying to each other? When we gather together, when we talk, what are we saying to each other? And then I want to, we're, we're actually going to pause. This is going to be a little different today. We're going to pause and we're going to have a testimony in the middle of that. Um, after I, I, I grapple with that question for a second. Um, and this is going to be the best thing of today is to hear Emma Hershey share her story with us uh, connected to this very subject, this very topic that we're talking about. And then I'll come back up just really briefly to make a couple of ap application points. So let me just say something before Emma comes up, a few things about what we are saying to each other within the context of the church. See, what we say to one another about each other is powerful. You've experienced that in your life. You've, you've seen that. Uh, and when we consider all the parts of who we are, including the parts that I've already mentioned, those sources that we go to for self, for identity, for value, uh, we see a couple of things. First of all, all those different things that I listed, all the different attributes of, of who we are, they're important. You know, personality differences and and our, our race and gender and affiliations, these are all part of the beautiful way in which God has made us. His plan was good in making us all so different. It's really good because it reflects the glory and the beauty and the wonder of, of God. Part of his wonderful diversity, and it's part of the story. We, we sang about this earlier, the story that is us. Each person is living a, a unique individual story, and those matter to God. They're important. They're wonderful. They're valuable. They're not to be ignored. There's value in exploring them and understanding how they shape who we are. This is an important part of the journey of life is, is to dig in and, and understand our history and how we got to where we were and our family of origin and, and all those different facets. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's important. It's worthy of exploration. But none of those elements alone has the capacity. This is the second thing. So the first one is, is that they're all important, but all those things that we've talked about, that list, none of them alone has the capacity or the power to actually ultimately fill that, that longing for value and worth that, that we all have, that exists at the center of us. In order to fill that, this is a couple things you need. You need, you need somebody who can speak into the deepest part of who you are. And secondly, that person needs to be someone of um, authority, enough authority, so that when they speak, what they say is unquestionably truth. So if you have that, then you've got somebody who actually can do the deepest kind of formation work with respect to our identities. And when we think about the church, you know, we look around at us and, and we're, you know, maybe we're nice people and we, we say nice things to each other, but ultimately we don't have the capacity to speak on the kind of level that I'm talking about in and of our own selves. We don't have the kind of authority. Um, 
What can I say to you about you that would eternally alter the way that you view yourself? Right? I can't say a whole lot in myself, but God can. And here's where, here's the point. God is the one who has the authority and the deep insight to speak into the deepest parts of who we are. He knows what's true. And he knows who we are and he knows what we need because he made us. And so here we find a, an interesting dynamic that, that God has the authority and the insight to say. And, and, and though we can't speak on that level, what we can do is we can repeat to one another what God has said about us already. And that turns out to be a very powerful way for us to enter into community and to enter into the identity formation process with one another. I can remind you of what God says about you. I can treat you in a way that aligns with what God has already said about you. See, and it reinforces that message that comes so powerfully from the one who made us. So what God says uh, about us is all throughout scripture. And there's one passage that I would love for you to turn to with me in the book of Ephesians, right in the beginning of the book of Ephesians, that I often go back to. And most people would say this is one of the most powerful passages on the subject of identity formation within the whole Bible. Um, so if you have your Bible, open up to Ephesians 1. And I feel like I need to read this passage to the church about once a year because it's so important to the process of forming our identities. And I always do this, uh, often do this. I bite off more than I can handle uh, with the time that I have. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this. And I, what I'd like you to do, because we don't have time to really dig into all the nuances. Uh, last time I went through Ephesians chapter 1, I spent three weeks just on this passage. And so... That's available for you online. You can go back and dig deep into that. But uh, right now, all I can really do today is, is just sort of remind you uh, of some of the key phrases and points that are in this text. So, um, okay, still getting used to holding the mic here while I do these other things. So, okay, here we are in Ephesians uh, 1, verse 3. And this passage is structured in a beautiful way. It sort of talks about uh, the fact that you are blessed in your past, you're be blessed in the present, and you're blessed in the future. And I'm just going to read it. I might make a couple of comments throughout. Um, but Paul says this to the Ephesians. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world. Now, a lot of people get twisted around that word chose, and there is a great theological debate about God choosing and what are the implications of that with God not choosing, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not the main point of what Paul is saying here. The main point is for you to receive this powerful message that God had you in mind specifically, the unique you in mind, okay, when he came to you in relationship. That's the powerful point. 
and and on another time we can we can grapple with uh, the you know predestination and all of that. Um, but even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have, so so your past is blessed because you already chosen for adoption, and your present is blessed because you have redemption, verse 7, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Hey, just think about it. Think of all the things you've done in your life that were harmful to somebody else, uh, harmful to the world that God made. What this is saying is that all those can be forgiven. All those can be forgiven in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So your past is blessed. Your present is blessed. And then verse 11, in him, we have obtained an inheritance. Your future is blessed. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will in Christ might to the be to might be to the praise of his glory in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it or it also could be translated until the redemption of those who are God's possession so it's in other words saying that you have an inheritance in God but you are God's inheritance as well so there's this beautiful union of the two that's the that's where we're headed future wise all of this to the praise of his glory so this passage is foundational to your self understanding and it would behoove you to sit with it um, we can't do it justice in just a reading of it like that today. But this passage is foundational in your self-understanding, in our self-understanding, and how we understand one another, which is sort of the point where I'm going with it. Starting about 12 years ago, we, we developed a summary. And those of you who've been around this church for a while will remember this. But we developed a way to summarize this passage so that we could easily and quickly repeat it to one another. You're chosen, adopted, beloved, redeemed, sealed, the child of God. That's what you are. And that's what we say to each other. You are a chosen, adopted, beloved, redeemed, sealed child of God. Whenever in a moment where you're just like, who am I? I mean, the, the Bible's saying this is the most true thing about you in Christ. When all else is shaken away, this is what remains. Chosen, adopted, beloved, redeemed, sealed child of God. And if you can get your mind around that, and that's the challenge, right? That's why we need each other, because it's hard to get our minds around that. But if we can get our minds around that, it changes everything about the way that we think ourselves of ourselves, which then in turn changes the way we, we move through the world. As a church, what we do is we reinforce to one another this statement that God has made about each one of us. 
And, and if you go to the next verse, 15, this is what Paul says right after. And this is, this is sort of the, this is a little, this is kind of the crux of the matter. So, so he's saying, you know, this is who you are in Christ. Your past, your present, your future are blessed. And then in verse 15, he says, for this reason. In other words, because God has said this about you, now I treat you in the following way. Because God has said it about you, now I'm going to treat you in the following way. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. In other words, because you've accepted God's statement over you. That's, that's what it means to become a Christian, is to receive in faith what God says about you in those opening verses in Ephesians chapter 1. So he's acknowledging that they have received that message in faith. So if you're visiting today and you are seeking in spiritual things, this is really the, op- this is the first step for you. Okay, God has said this incredible thing. Now, am I going to receive it in faith? Okay, so he's acknowledging the importance of that step. They've taken the step of receiving what God has said in faith. He says, for this reason, and because I've heard of your faith, right? Because you've received this message. I do, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you. In other words, I give thanks for you because of what God has said about you and who you are. I love you. And he goes on in the next verses. I wish I had time to unpack it. But in verses 16 all the way through verse 23, he's unpacking these beautiful uh, hopes and dreams that he has for them. Why does he have hopes and dreams for them as people? Because he loves them. Why does he love them? Because God loves them. Paul's love is a mirror of God's love. And that's how the church works. We mirror to one another the love of God. And that ends up being profoundly impactful in the identity formation process. So uh, to put it in the words of, of the apostle John in 1 John 4.11, Beloved, he says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Everything I've said, which maybe sounded really complicated, is summarized in that verse. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And it's what we do as we step into that work of loving one another. Then we get to see how beautiful it is. We get to see what births out of the the work of of mirroring the message of God to one another, of aligning the way we treat each other with what God says about us. And there's a beautiful story of this that I've known about for a while with my sister in the Lord, Emma Hershey. And we've been talking and decided today's the day for her to share a bit of her story, um, which is going to be more impactful than me even just talking about it. So come on up here, Emma. Um, Emma has been part of our church for all. She's part of our home group, uh, a great sister. She works with our youth. She's actually um, working with uh, Opiso. um, And so what she's going to share is going to be available on Opiso. But the real point here is here's a live example of what I've been talking about. So Thank you, Emma. And let me just pray for you. God, uh, it's such a big thing when we, when we become transparent and um, share our story with, with the brothers and sisters of the people in the community. And so I just pray peace upon Emma and, um, yeah, just fruitfulness 
that you would use what you've done so wonderfully in her life to bless us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you. Well, good morning. Um, my name's Emma. Um, I joined Solano maybe two years ago. Um, and yeah, it's my privilege to share with you what God did in my life. So I grew up here, actually, in Berkeley, uh, not having any real concept of who Christ was. At the time, I wasn't terribly concerned about it. To me, Christians seemed ignorant at best and evil at worst. The only message I'd ever received um, was that I was going to hell. End of story. And if that was it, I figured I wasn't missing much. Sure, I, I didn't always do the right thing, but I always had some sort of excuse for why. And instead of dwelling on this, I took pride in my intellect, compassion, and drive to do good. But I was actually missing everything. Since childhood, I've yearned for deep and abiding affection. Though I grew up in a family that regularly expressed affection, I still always feared my own inadequacy. I wholeheartedly pursued attention from others, working hard for their praise and recognition. And I excelled academically and athletically because I desperately wanted to be known and loved by everyone around me. In fact, I was so caught up in my own desires that I never actually gave thought to giving others that same love that I so desperately wanted. And I maintained this mentality through high school. It had worked uh, for me so far. But my understanding of affection was corrupted completely when I got to college and was raped one week into my freshman year. I left that night in physical and emotional pain, feeling dirty, ashamed, and afraid. But what I didn't know was that God was already working in my life, and my roommate convinced me to tell my RA, Elliot, who just so happened to be a Christian. And it shocked me that he immediately sacrificed time and energy to help me. But it still wasn't enough. I knew people's energy and patience couldn't be infinite, and I was constantly afraid of reaching their limit. So I resorted to self-harm, the only way that I could deal with the trauma by myself, while also taking out my frustration on myself for not being the joyful, outgoing person I wanted to be. And after months of feeling burdensome to seemingly everyone around me, I reached my own limit and decided that it would be better if I wasn't around anymore. I ended up not having the courage to take my own life that night and praise God because I wouldn't have found the rest I so desperately longed for. Instead, God used hitting rock bottom to show me that he's actually that rock I can stand on. He prompted me to join Elliot as campus ministry, though at the time I didn't understand why I wanted to go. But the people there also didn't mind that I was hurting most days. They actually wanted an honest answer to the question, how are you? And they were happy to walk with me for the long term. I saw in them what I now know to be God's own kindness. It was overflowing out of them naturally. God was breaking down my walls against him and his followers. I actually enjoyed my time at the campus ministry, to my surprise. I didn't need to agree or understand everything being said to be welcomed there. And so I felt comfortable bombarding Elliot with questions, trying to poke as many holes as I could in his faith. Though I tried to show Elliot how his beliefs were invalid, time and time again, I left those discussions a little more confused about my own. He knew his Bible well and wasn't afraid of my questions. When he didn't know how to answer them, he emailed his Christian mentors and did his own research. I respected him for his intellectual honesty and confidence in his faith. 
but I couldn't bring myself to believe in this God that he and others spoke of. It was actually only a month later that God made himself known to me in a way that I couldn't reason away. It was a Sunday, and I'd agreed to come with Elliot and his friends to their church service. It was the first church service I'd ever been to. And that morning, I was especially burdened, still reeling from one of my worst flashbacks just two days prior. As the congregation started singing, I read the lyrics projected on the screen, and I saw myself. I was fearful, weak, crushed by an enemy. In hearing that just the name of Jesus had power, I wondered for just a moment if that could be true. And immediately, I was surrounded and embraced by the most powerful yet gentle presence I'd ever felt in my life. I almost fell over in shock. In that moment, though I didn't even believe he existed, I thought, it's God. Within two days of that Sunday morning, God had humbled me to the point of having only one choice, to bend the knee. And on my 19th birthday, I gave myself to Jesus, not understanding everything, but knowing with certainty that I needed to be with him. He'd shown me he simply loved me. The God of the universe loves and desires me to be with him. The following year, I dove into the scriptures. I'd been missing out for 19 years. And as I read, I saw that Jesus is even more thoughtful, compassionate, and just than I ever was. I wasn't actually as great as I'd thought. During that first year following Christ, I'd been continuing to make excuses for my own judgment and selfishness. But as my heart was transformed by reading the word, it became harder to justify my sin. I was self-centered and self-righteous. I'd been idolizing my relationships, knowledge, comfort, and ultimately myself. When I finally realized the depth of my sin and was horrified by what I saw in myself, the gospel became the sweetest gift and also my lifeline. Jesus had died for my sins, paid the price for them, and risen from the grave so he could claim victory for me on my behalf, give me eternal life. His grace for me was deeper than I could have ever imagined. God's affection is pure, uncorrupted. It's compassionate, faithful, patient, boundless. Praise God for pursuing me when I didn't pursue him, for fighting for me while I not only called myself his enemy, but also strove to jeopardize his people. This affection from God is holy, completely other, and only a holy God could transform me, a selfish, judgmental, prideful person, into someone who actually loves pursuing others in committed affection and forbearance. He's given me a new heart that loves what he loves, and I've come to trust his definition of good more than my own. Now I adore instead of despise the church, Christ's body, and my family in him. Instead of treasuring my own comfort and my life itself, I seek to put others before myself so that I may point them to Christ's intimate care for them. In serving my church in college and women's ministry, I experienced the cost of sacrificial service and love, but every time I also found myself more joyful. God had shown me that it really is more blessed to give than to receive. And while this isn't always easy, as I walked with Christ, he's also opened my eyes to the freedom I have in him, both freedom from sin and shame and freedom to pursue righteousness by the power of his spirit. I'm still fighting against my selfish tendencies every day, and many days I fail to love others as I should. But it's in those moments I'm reminded of why and how Christ is my savior. Instead of being crushed by shame and regret, I can cry out to him for forgiveness and the strength to keep fighting. 
And when I'm forced to depend on him for strength and holiness, because I can't muster it up myself, I get to see him work in ways I wouldn't get to see if I took the easier route. When Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well, he said, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I already have every desire met in Jesus, so I can pour out my life from a place of abundance, knowing he'll always provide for me and has always provided for me as I give myself away. He is so generous with his affection and love, and when we know this love, he transforms us more and more into his image. So I'm praying, like we said this morning, that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is this love of Christ. Thanks. Thank you so much. Amen. A couple of thoughts as we, we just finish up together. Um, a lot of what we're going to be doing now is, is over the next weeks is talking about how do we say what God has already said about us to one another. And what are the, what's the framework and the heart that we need to be able to be like in Emma's story, the way Elliot was that mirror of Christ's love. Couldn't be Christ's love. Emma had to have that meeting with Jesus Christ, right? That there had to be that. But the community of faith came around and served as a as the mirror of Christ in a really powerful way. And so, you know, we do this just a couple of thoughts and and then we'll finish. We do this by word and we do it by deed. Both what we say and how we serve one another. And the scriptures talk in this way. You know, even the small things that we, we do can make a difference. The way that we receive one another. Somebody might not be received anywhere else they go in the world, but when they come to church, they ought to be received, right? There's something very powerful and aligned with Christ. Um, you know, the way that we take interest in one another. So, so pursuing the story of the other to understand who this unique individual is that's standing before me, made in the image of God and so precious. Listening to one another. That's maybe more on the word side. And then on the, on the deed, the, you know, the serving side, taking action on behalf of one another. Um, some of the scriptures that we often refer to as the one another's, um, Galatians 5.13, serve one another. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens. Hebrews 10.24, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. 1 Peter 4.9, be hospitable to one another. James 5.16, pray for one another. And you could go on and on. There's endless ways for us to express what God has said in all of the unique circumstances in which we find ourselves in relationships. There's endless ways to do that. And really what we have to do is focus on getting the heart and the framework right so that it just starts to flow naturally in our relationships. And this is where I come to that phrase I'm taking as the title of this series, Yearning with Affection. It comes from the book of Philippians in the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says, For God is my witness... How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. See, we don't have in and of ourselves the capacity to love in the way that we would want to. But the good news is that we have Christ Jesus who fills us increasingly with that capacity to love. So, so Paul can say this amazing thing, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And so this is really about getting the framework and the heart right so that we can grow in our ability to love in the way that Emma experienced love in a moment when she really needed it. And it turns out next week we're going to explore this. There's one thing that you can do that will just turbocharge, supercharge the growth in you of love and affection for the community of faith. That's next week. We're going to talk about what that thing is. Paul teaches us what that thing is. But for now, I want to leave you with this. I want you to to reflect on this powerful truth that when somebody walks into our community, when somebody walks into our community, you you might just say to yourself, oh, there's just another person. Oh, look, just another person. There's so many. But what, what, what might actually be happening in that moment is when somebody walks into our community, we have this almost every Sunday, right? Where somebody is, is, is taking that step of faith to be present with us. What we don't know is what is going on behind the scenes in that person's life. We don't know that this might be one of the most powerful moments in that person's life. A moment where, you know, some really incredible identity formation work is being done. Uh, what brought, brings a person to the point of having, you know, being able to expose some of those deepest questions. And here we are, we have this precious opportunity with this person to speak words of life. To reflect words of life that will bring about deep and profound, eternal transformation. That's who we are as the church, and that's what we're called to do. That's what we do because God loves, we love.